you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. suburb of Irving, Wesley Frazier's 1953 Chevrolet sedan joins the flow of morning traffic speeding along Stennon's freeway toward the gray towers of downtown Dallas. About the only other comment was made was about the weather, and it was an easy day, and we both said if it didn't clear up, it's sure going to be a bad day. surely have a treat for you today this joint is about to get classier by a minute I've got a great guest for you she was a delight to have on the show you're gonna love her we had a great conversation and without further ado I bring to you Francesca Number 72 of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is your boy Rob Clark. I have a very special guest for you today. Her name is Francesca Actar, the grassy knoll girl and fellow member of the 22 November Network on the show with me today. How are you doing, Francesca? Hi, Rob. I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem. My, my pleasure. You are the first female to be on the show so far. Am I really? Yes. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be the first. Well, I'm glad to finally have one on here because <laughs> a whole lot of dudes I guess, talking. Oh, sorry. I guess the, uh, I guess most of the people who, um, who kind of work in the assassination case or are interested tend to be male. So, I suppose that's not surprising. But. I know, but there, there's there's a lot of good females uh, researchers out there as well. You know. Sure. <clears throat> But now you are a member of Dealey Plaza UK, correct? Um, not anymore. I used to be for a while, um, and um, I wrote some articles for the uh, for the Dealey Plaza Echo. But uh, I'm not at the moment. Oh, okay. And I know some of those articles can be found at the Mary Farrell site too. 
Yes, that's right. Um, the Mary Farrell site now um, has, I think, most of the um, most of the archive of the old uh, DPUK um, articles, and I think um, I'm not sure exactly where they are, but I think um, they're pretty up to date. So, yeah, most of the, 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 the articles I've written can be found there. See, people, she knows what she's talking about, so this is going to be a fun show. We're going to be talking today about a book called The Assassination Tapes by George O'Toole. And this book is is kind of unique. <clears throat> it was, I think, published in 75, I think. I believe yes, that's, that's right. Yes, that's right. I think it was 75. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, the whole deal of the book is it's... It's base, basically what he did was he went back and he took old uh, old uh, interviews, you know, like uh, news interviews, and he actually conducted new interviews uh, in person and on the telephone, and he put them up against what some, this machine that he had, something called the psychological stress evaluator, the, or PSE for short. Now this machine uh, was created. Back, I, th- I believe it was in the early 70s, by um, three guys who formed this group called Dector uh, Counterintelligence and Security. It was started by Alan Bell, uh, Charles McQuiston, and Wilson Ford. And uh, they are the guys who, uh, who made the machine. It's often called a voice lie detector. <clears throat> it, it's, it's, but it's actually a truth verification device. It's based on... Uh, uh, muscle micro tremors, which occur in the vocal cords when the speaker is under stress. And these micro tremors cannot be heard, yet they can occur either from external stressors, such as having a hot cup of coffee dumped in your lap, or from an internal stressor of lying when you know better. Now, this, this device has been tested exhaustively by, by the, of course, these three guys and, of course, uh, various experts of PSE. And the guy, George O'Toole, who actually wrote the book, um, did go and take a course. He got a PSE straight from these guys. Uh, he, he, he went for, a, I believe it was a six-day uh, crash course on how to use the machine properly. And uh, he tested it, of course, beforehand, before he even started doing any of this stuff. Um, and the machine was basically found out to have a... An, anywhere from a mid 90 to high 90 uh, percent of accuracy. I mean, it blows, you know, the old school lie detectors out of the water as far as accuracy. Now, I believe it was in the early nineties, this company that they made, uh, eventually went out of business. This Dector counterintelligence and security incorporated, uh, went out of business. Now there is, um, there was something in the early 2000s that kind of t- went in and took its place, and they kind of updated the machine a little bit. But it's it hasn't really it never really did take off in the mainstream. Uh, maybe because it was too accurate and and uh, you know could be used for very nefarious purposes. I mean, you can detect if someone's lying over the phone um, from past interviews. Um, so you know it's a very very uh, crazy little tool here that they created. And of course, the guy who created it, um, the main guy, Alan Bell, he was uh, he was the head of the counterintelligence division in Berlin in Germany in the 60s. Um, he received his training from Fort Holabird in Dundalk, Maryland, in the late 50s, and went back to Holabird as an instructor in 67.
but he was also um, trained in spy craft, and he actually invented a lot of other things too, uh, not just this. So Francesca, I was uh, very happy when you approached me with the idea of talking about this book, um, because I, I the, and there is a main character to this book, and we'll get into him, I promise. And I, wa- I wanted to do a show about him anyway, because uh, the last show I did, I think was. I think show number three or four. So it's been a while since I was able to talk about this guy. So Francesca, what caught your eye about this book? Um, yeah, well, it was it was a very strange coincidence because I think a few shows a few shows back you were, you, you mentioned the book, um, and I and I just happened to be reading it at the time. Um, so I thought oh, it was a strange coincidence. Um, I think it's a fascinating book. I first came across a reference to it, I think, last year on a forum, and I'd never heard of it before. Um, and I thought that's fascinating. Um, and I managed to get hold of a copy, um, and I've, I've been reading it. And I think what you have to remember about this book is that, um, although it was published in 75, I think he carried out the investigation in 73. So um, he had the advantage that it was still pretty pretty soon after the assassination so he was able to actually go and interview um a lot of the people like um you know a lot of the dallas police members a lot of the people that have since passed on um and so a lot of the information he obtained you know today we, we might read the book and think well that's that's obvious but we're you know reading it from the standpoint of today but you have to remember back then i mean this was even before the hsca and all the information that came out of that. So really, I think it's quite amazing that a lot of the information that he um, gained and he he proved with the with the PSE um, to a certain extent that we kind of know today that is pretty much true. Um, and yeah, I thought it's extremely interesting. Yeah. Now a lot of that. I mean, I guess a lot of people reading the book you know, might look at it as, as pure hokum and there's really, you know, no no merit to what he's doing. I mean, I'm sure that's what the naysayers will say, but, I mean, it's yeah. actually uh, the, the process of doing it, and it's not it's not like what people would think. Um, you know, there is a, I think it's a seven-part scale, um, you know, going ranging from no stress to uh, extreme stress, you know, and, and everything in between, you know, good good to moderate, moderate to good, good to hard, hard to extreme. Um, and That's right. That's right. And it's it, and it, there is a scientific, there's quite a solid scientific um, basis for this machine. Um, and George O'Toole, the, the, the man who carried out the investigation, he actually went on a course and he trained, I think it was with a police, uh, a police detective who'd used it extensively. I think it was in Maryland um, that they'd obtained really good results um, with it. And actually, I think they did a test where they compared the the lie detector, or the polygraph, with the PSC. And I think the PSC actually outperformed the lie detector every time because, um, as it explains in the book, it's, it's pretty complicated, but I think the first couple of chapters are um, the scientific explanation of how it works. And basically, the PSC is thought to be more accurate than the lie detector because... Um, from what from what he says, with the lie detector, uh, apparently the when you tell a lie, <clears throat> um, all the results when when the person's being questioned, apparently they it takes longer to to, to actually be recorded. Um, whereas with the PSE, um, it, 
it's kind of more accurate because with the voice apparently it's um the results are sort of more quickly obtained so you know there's not this kind of delay that um and i know there's been a lot of you know if if, if you know anything about the lie detector it you know there's lots of um things i've read where people have been able to beat it by various methods well, i don't think it's so easy with with, with the um with the because it's based on the voice stress analysis which which detects the micro tremors in the voice and i think they're more difficult to to hide you um, can't really control that. there is a solid yeah there is a solid basis to it it's not just um you know uh, something that's just been made up it's it's actually based on a solid science yeah it's not just crackpot science i mean it's and, yeah. and and what happens exactly is they'll 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 record you know make their recording, and then what they do is they they slow it down. I, I believe it's seven seven times the normal speed, and then they run that through the PSE, and that is where your micro tremors get detected at it when when you know the voice is going at really slow speeds. So it's 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 a lot harder to uh, deceive a PSE machine than a lot you know the, the traditional lie detector test, which, like you said, you know some people can beat them, um, you, you know, just remaining calm or you know sticking a thumbtack in their shoe and and you know hitting hitting it on every answer. And these traditional lie detectors, I mean, a lot of them they're only as good as the person giving them and the questions that are asked. You know, these can, because the. I don't know if people know it or not, but over here the police can lie to you. You know, when you're in when you're in custody, they can lie to you. You know, while you're hooked up to the machine, they can say, you know, uh, you know, we found the gun with your fingerprints on it. You know, even if they really didn't. Okay, so they, you know, they can they can lie even though you can't. And it's it's very it's very hard to, I guess that you know, and that's why. The lie detector test was not admissible in court for so many years because of things like that that, you know, they just couldn't be relied upon. And I think the PSE, you know, when they tested it was, and they tested it also against a, a game show, I think, I can't remember what it was called. Who? That's right, I do remember reading it. But it's where three people come out, and I remember this show in the 70s. Like three people come out and they say, they all say, that, you know, they say like, hi, I'm John Smith. And, you know, I'm an, I'm an engineer for Boeing and, uh, you know, they all tell this story and, and the, the panel has to, through asking them questions, has to deduce who is actually telling the truth and who is really John Smith and who really worked at Boeing. And it, it was a good thing to measure the PSE against because, you know, a, all, all three people, you know, are, are supposedly telling the truth, but two are definitely lying and you know that. So using the machine to figure out which one was lying. And I think it had like a 94.7% success rate against that TV show. So yeah, that's pretty that's good. Right. And I think, I think it had an even higher success rate when they tested it in the police department. I think it had, a, I think it was nearly a hundred percent, but if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, well, that guy you were talking about, Mike Kratz is his name and yeah, he, that's did, right. he did work for Howard County uh, police in Maryland. And he was the, uh, the lie detector administrator, you know, for that county. And he knew that there was problems with the, you know, traditional lie detector. And he was looking for something different. And he had heard about the PSE and uh, 
you know, he obtained one, went through the training, and he started using it. And, you know, he got way better results, like I said, near 100% accuracy. And he eventually went on to work for Dector and, and, and actually train, uh, teach their training classes. So, you know, this guy was a, a big-time believer in it and, uh, you know, eventually went to work for him. That's right. I mean, I, I'd just like to read a couple of lines from the book um, where he explains um, about PSC, and he says... Physiological tremor is the terminus of a much shorter path from the central nervous system. Stress patterns appear in the voice at the same moment the subject experiences the stress. And that's, he says, that's unlike the lie detector, which he says the polygraph is in fact far from the ideal means of detecting psychological stress, since the variables it measures are at several removes from the source of the anxiety, which is the brain and the central nervous system. A deceptive polygraph response shows up on the chart only after several seconds have elapsed from the moment the subject tells a lie. It takes that long for the effect to reach the respiratory and circulatory systems. So it seems, um, you know, quite evident from what he says that it really is a more accurate um, means of measuring, you know, what's, what is a lie and what's the truth. Um, the, the only problem, the only problem that he does raise in the book is that there could be an ethical problem with with the use of the PSC, um, because unlike the lie detector, you don't actually have to be present. The person who's being questioned doesn't actually have to be present, or the person who's being examined rather um, doesn't actually have to be present when they're being questioned. Um, and so there's all kinds of questions that I guess you know are, are actually quite relevant as to is it a breach of people's civil liberties if you're actually examining them um, from a recording of their voice without their knowledge or over the phone Um, and it's interesting because purely by chance while I was reading the book um, I downloaded a few of the May Brussels shows to listen to and um, I'd reached I'd gotten up to 1977 um, the beginning um, I think the show was the 10th of January where she actually mentions the HSCA because it was around the time I think that it was setting up and she actually mentions the um, PSE and she was very much against it which I found interesting because she said it, it really could be used um, like you said for nefarious purposes and um, it could breach people's civil liberties um, and she actually said she wasn't in favour of it as she said um you know, only the FBI and the CIA make the machine, so therefore, you know, they, they would have control over it. Um, and what she actually says, she says, well, you know, um, because on her show she says, I don't know if this is true because I've not I've not heard this or I've not I've not read this anywhere else, but she says that apparently it was being considered um, for use in the HSCA investigation. Um, I don't know if you've heard that, but she she says that she wouldn't be in favour of that because she says they could get somebody like Reese Payne, um, who she thinks is guilty of, of having some involvement in the assassination, um, and and get the, and use the PSC to basically say that she she what she she was telling the truth. But I'm not actually sure if she's if she's got a bit muddled with that because. Um, I don't think she, I don't, I'm not sure if she read the book, but I went back over the book to see if he he quest, he tested he tested Ruth Payne and um, 
he didn't. He mentions her in passing, but he she she isn't actually one of the people he tests with the um, with the machine. So I think perhaps she's got that a bit wrong. Maybe she was just you know Worried. speculating that yeah. perhaps it could be used in that way. But actually, he, Ruth Payne isn't one of the people that he tests. So you know, I think perhaps she was maybe giving her opinion on that. But but also, I think what's interesting is. Um, in the book, it says that the American Polygraph Association was very much opposed to the use of the PSA also on civil on the grounds of civil liberties um, and the fact that the PSA could be used without the knowledge and consent of the person being examined. And I guess it's it's I can see that I can see that point, and I, and I do think it's a valid point. But on the other hand, you could also say, well does that make it a true test? Because if they're being examined kind of blind, as it were, and they're not aware of it, do, would their responses be truer than if they're chained up to a polygraph where they know they're being tested? I don't know. Right. I, I mean, I think I think you would get more accuracy if, if, you know, people, for instance, you know, like a lot of these guys that he talked to in the book, like, like Gerald Hill and uh, Buell Frazier and, and people like that, they didn't know that they were going to be uh, tested on the PSE. They, they, you know, they thought they were just giving interviews. And, of course, he did go back and analyze uh, several news clips and, uh, and things like that. And, of course, they, they wouldn't have known that they were being analyzed either. And, I, I, you know, I think if they knew, they'd probably be more stressed, you know, really. Yeah, and, and I can, yeah, it, it's a tricky one, really, because, um, you know, O'Toole did have to tell a lie when he was interviewing these people. Um, you know, he pretended to be a journalist who was researching an article for the 10th anniversary of the assassination, and, um, you know, you could say that was wrong and really underhanded, which I can see, but on the other hand, um, you know, I doubt he would have got people to talk to him if he had been honest, so it's kind of, um, yeah, it, it's a tricky one, really. Um, to get the, to get the actual true information, he kind of had to tell a bit of a lie, which you know some people might not agree with. But on the other hand, you know, I think sometimes you have to to get to the truth. Unfortunately, um, I don't know what your views on that are. Well, I mean, you know, the cops can do it, so why not a journalist? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess so. Now, I'd like to know actually if he's um, still alive. Because I've, I've tried to, you know, Google him, but there doesn't seem to be that much information on him or whether he's even still alive. I was wondering the exact same thing because, um, well, according to the book, you know, at the time that he wrote the book, he lived in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is pretty damn accessible to me. I mean, I'm looking at like an hour and a half away. And I was thinking, you know, I mean, just from looking at the back cover of the book, the guy, he looks like he's in his, what, mid-40s maybe at the time? Yeah, it says he was born in 1936, so he could still well be alive. Yeah, so he'd be in his like his early 80s or something, something, something like that, or late 80s. I'm sorry. Um, it's possible that he would still be alive. Not probable, but like, like I looked too, and I couldn't find an obituary or or anything yeah. like that. I mean, he has a fairly common name, I guess, in America. So. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's what. When I was um, <clears throat> searching for him, there, there seems to be a judge um, of the same name, which uh, isn't helpful when you're trying to search because all of the search results seem to be 
related to this um, judge who I think was involved in the George Zimmerman case, so that seems to block oh, yeah. anything else. Yeah, um, and I even went another route. I, I was thinking about trying to get uh, one of his investigators, Anthony Pelicano, to get in touch with him. Um, and when I Googled him, I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> probably not going to be able to talk to <laughs> yeah. this guy either. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually realize that was the same because in the book he's referred to as Tony Pelicano. I didn't actually realize it was the same Anthony Pelicano that's, uh, I believe he was, he was sent to prison for, um, yeah, I think he's still in prison. If, if not, he, right. he just got out recently or something like that, but he was the, uh, what they called the private investigator to the stars, but he used a lot of dirty underhanded methods, you know, tapping, tapping phones and, uh, bugging houses and breaking into people's houses. And, uh, I mean, he got results. Don't get me wrong, but I think, uh, I think he's a little unethical in his methods as well. Yeah. And what, and the reason, cause it well, George O'Toole, he used, he used, uh, he had to go through a couple investigators in order to find a certain person in this book who we'll get into in a little bit. But before we get to Buell Frazier, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, the guys in the Dallas police department that, that he actually, uh, talked to and tested, um, guys like Gerald Hill and, uh, Westbrook and people like that. Yeah, that was, that was really quite illuminating. Um, because I believe that he asked Gerald Hill um, about the polygraph, um, whether, a, you know, a polygraph was given to, um, I think he said anybody, on, on the night of November the 22nd. And um, it's very interesting because Hill actually says that, um, that Fritz, you know, didn't use polygraphs because he didn't believe in them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's no, there's no chance he would have given a polygraph to, to anybody because he never used them, um, which which wasn't true according to Paul Bentley because O'Toole then went back to Paul Bentley and said, oh, you know, he'd heard from somebody else, I don't think he named who it was, that that Fritz didn't use polygraphs because he um, he didn't believe in them. And Bentley said, well, that, you know, that wasn't true because he, I think he was the polygraph, he was the chief polygraph examiner and he said he'd actually run many polygraph tests for, for Fritz. And... Um, when he, uh, when O'Toole ran um, his his response through the PSC, it showed um, a low, stre- almost no stress, which implies that he was telling the truth on that. So it's very interesting, and you know, it makes you wonder why why would Gerald Hill lie about that? Or well, I'll tell you who else lied about what, that. What would be the motive? Was uh, was R. D. Lewis? He also got in touch with R. D. Lewis, the guy who was supposed to have. Uh, administered the test to Buell Fraser that night, and he denied any recollection of it, and of course produced hard, you know, moderate to hard stress, which indicates he was lying, which he was. Yeah. Because miraculously, yeah, it, uh, you know, a couple years later, for the HSCA investigators, you know, he he remembers giving Buell the polygraph test and uh, saying that he passed with flying colors. R.D. Lewis, and he said, oh, you know, I, I'm sorry to bother you again, but, uh, you know, he always tried to kind of be very respectful and say, oh, but, you know, I just had a few more questions, you know, so that they would still talk to him, and um, I think he he didn't even 
even remember at first the the date of the assassination and you know i think he was saying well what what date was that again um you know and you think you'd remember the date of the kennedy assassination especially if you were you know semi-involved in the in the investigation of it i mean um it's you know it's that event that everybody says if you were alive at the time that you you remember where you were so it seems pretty strange but then when he said to him, oh, because, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I read that you were actually called in to give the polygraph, then all of a sudden he he seemed to remember, oh, yes, you know, I, I actually, yes, I was, I was working that evening, I was working that evening. When, you know, a few minutes before, he didn't even remember the, the, the date of the assassination, so it's, it's all very strange. Yeah, and another thing that those guys were looking into, uh, well, I mean, O'Toole was looking into with these guys, um, was was also the Hydell ID being in his wallet uh, at the time of his arrest, and from from talking to these guys, you know, he kind of deduced that uh, because you know there was nothing transmitted over the radio that day of uh, you know about a Hydell ID, um, and there were several calls from the arrest car to headquarters and uh, even to Fritz. Um, who told him, you know, to bring, you know, to bring him in to to his office, and uh, and he said that they got the, you know, they got the wallet, his ID, his name's Lee Oswald, but nothing was ever said about the Hydell ID. Um, but I think later on to the Warren Commission, you know, they testified that they had found the Hydell identification actually in his wallet um, at the time of his arrest. But from what old Tool seems to think, um, that they're all lying about that which would indicate that it was something that kind of popped up later. Yeah, I believe in the book he mentions that uh, he, he's interviewing Paul Bentley and who was um, in the car with Oswald uh, after he'd been arrested. Um, and he said that he'd taken the wallet from the left, I think it was the left yeah. um, pocket of his trousers, and he said to him, um, when he when he analysed that statement, apparently there was maximum hard stress on that, which it, which implies that he he wasn't telling the truth on that. Um, yeah, because normally right-handed people keep their wallet in their back right pocket, you know. We, yeah, you would think so. But uh, you know that also could have been because I think he was trying to say like Oswald was born left-handed and he was made to use his right hand, so he may have actually been ambidextrous or something to that effect. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. But, uh, so let's get to Mr. Frazier. Now, he is the star of the show, at least in this book. Um, and it turned out, I mean, well, first, I, I think, uh, O'Toole analyzed some of his statements that he made in the media, um, you know, directly after the assassination and determined that he was, that he was lying in several of his statements. Um, at that at that time, and this was somebody because Bill Frazier was instrumental in the eyes of of everyone watching to you know putting a package in Oswald's hands and and bringing it into the Texas School Book Depository that day. Now whether it's long enough or short enough or whatever, whatever, um, you know that was very important. Um, to actually put a package in in Oswald's hands and uh, have him bring it into the Texas School Book Depository that day. Now, 
Bill Frazier, and we can start back, I guess, on the day of the assassination, you know, did a couple of very odd things. Now, one being, he uh, he was out on the front steps of the Texas School Book Depository waiting on the motorcade, and he looked around and said he saw all these people eating their lunch and got hungry. So he went down in the basement to eat his lunch, which is something he said he, he never did, um, but he did that day. And then it would appear that after the shots, Buell just stood like a statue on the front steps and uh, and just stood there up until the time, even even to uh, mo- as most recently as his sixth floor interview, I think for the 50th anniversary, he stated that he was standing out there and he watched Lee Oswald walk up Houston Street and turn the corner on the Main Street and leave the building. So, and it, co- does, it does seem strange. I mean, it, it does seem to go against the, the normal reaction of everybody else that was, you know, at the depository that day that, um, who, who, you know, when the shots happened, they ran out into the, into the plaza to see, you know, what was going on it. Yeah, and, he, and like you said, why would he eat his lunch in the basement if he'd never done it before? And and it just seems an odd thing because you know it's not every day president um, would would um, go past your place of work. So it, it just seems a very odd day for him to pick to eat his lunch in the basement. Um, it it doesn't seem to add up to me personally. No, I mean he more he likely would have went down and grabbed his lunch and brought it back upstairs and ate it ate it outside with everybody else, but. Yeah, that would make more sense. Yeah. And and some other peculiar things that have come to find out about Buell Frazier, and it, it all comes from uh, HSCA interviews um, from his from his co-workers, people like uh, Junior Jarman, Harold Norman, Eddie Shields, and several of these other characters um, that worked at the School Book Depository and at the warehouse that was over, or I can't remember the name of it, but it was the uh, the original warehouse where Buell Frazier had to park his car at. And uh, several of those people stated that he always brought Oswald to work, um, that the day of the assassination he showed up alone, and they asked him where his rider was, and he said, I dropped him off at the building, which totally goes against you know the official story of him, of Oswald getting out of his car and walking ahead of him while he stayed behind and revved up the engine to charge his battery. Um, you know, it also kind of discounts, um, the, the theory that, that somehow Oswald rode a bus to work every morning, um, because we don't have, we don't have those people, you know, where's the bus drivers that drove him to and work to and from work every day? Where's the people that rode with, you know, the assassin of the president for six weeks, you know, to and from, cause it, people that ride a bus to work, they ride it every day, you know? And, uh, you see the same people every day. You would talk to, you know, some of those people you'd think, you know, pretty frequently. You know, once you started riding with them all the time and got to know them and see them and, or, you know, nod to them, even if you just sat on there and read the newspaper on the way to work, you know, you kind of notice things. But I haven't heard a thing about bus drivers, cab drivers that drove him to and from work every day. I haven't heard anything about, you know, bus passengers that rode to and from work, you know, the, the same bus line every day. So how was Oswald getting to and from work? Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. And also the fact that it was raining on the morning of the 22nd. So, as you said, why would he drop him off 
you know, quite a, quite a distance from the depository for him to walk in the rain. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and I, I think I sent you that picture of, of well, it might have been Will. That's right. Yeah, or where, where Fraser had to park his car, and you can see the depository in the, in the distance, and it was a pretty good walk, you know? Yeah. And Buell being the nice guy that he is, you know, I mean, wh- why wouldn't you drop somebody you're bringing to work off at the door if it's raining? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It, I yeah, mean, I would. It does not seem to um, to make sense. Yeah, and, and you know, of course, the package story, the curtain rod story doesn't make sense. Um, because I mean, in, um, in the book, it's, you know, in the, the assassination tapes book, it's, you know, Otil mentions that in his affidavit, Frazier said that Oswald told him that the long paper package that he brought into the book depository on the 22nd of November contained curtain rods. Um, and... O'Toole analysed Frazier's statement because he'd given a, a statement to a reporter repeating the same story. Um, but when he ran it through the PSE, um, the result showed a maximum degree of stress throughout his responses. And the really interesting thing is that he showed O'Toole showed the results to another um, PSE specialist um, to get his opinion. And uh, apparently this, this specialist said, on a scale of 10... This stress is somewhere near eleven. Yeah, I mean, just about. So, yeah, I mean, just yeah. about all of Fraser's responses that were analyzed, um, he pretty much was lying on almost all of them, really. Yeah, and I think that's when you have the, in, later on in the book when um, Pelicano carries out the um, when they eventually track Fraser down, and he carries out the investigation over the phone. Um, doesn't and I mean when you think about it when you break it down to bare bones you know if Fraser's telling it if, if if he's telling the truth that that Oswald had a two foot long package okay you can't fit a gun in there okay it's, it's just not possible you can't fit the man liquor carcano in a two foot two foot long package it's just impossible um, no two foot long bag was found that we know of in, in the Texas school book depository no curtain rods were found inside the school book depository um, so either he's lying about the size of the package, or he's lying if there, that there was a package at all. And and another curious thing about Frazier and his activity that day is is he's unaccounted for the day of the assassination from I guess it's about one o'clock to four thirty when he's actually arrested at the Irving Medical Center, um, where he was I guess visiting his stepfather or, or something to that effect. Now, and, and also, just a side note, you know, first, first reports of, of the gun found in the school book depository was a 303 Enfield, which actually Buell Frazier owned. So. Yes, that's right. That's, that's a little crazy right there. I mean, because I think when, well, I think when the police went to Irving to try to find, uh, Oswald and, uh, that they were directed by Ruth Payne that she that they might want to go talk to uh 
um, Buell and Lenny May because he had given them a ride. And uh, they actually went to Buell's house and uh, searched his house. They found his rifle, took his rifle um, from his house. And that's where I think we first heard of of the uh, the Oswald package from Lenny May. Now, I don't know how that story may have evolved later in the day after Frazier's in custody because he's brought into custody and questioned for a little while, and then he's actually let go. And the police are driving him back to Irving when they get a call over the radio to bring Frazier back. Um, so they bring Frazier back. And uh, now I, I'm not sure the time of the events, but Frazier has admitted that he was asked to sign a confession by Will Fritz um, to being an accomplice in the murder, um, and that he got really angry and almost fought him, like came to blows over this thing. And they actually kept Bill Frazier in custody, I think, until 2 or 3 in the morning. And they did administer a lie detector test to him while he was there. What's what's really interesting, an important point to remember, is that he wasn't, you know, he was actually arrested. He wasn't just given a polygraph. You know, he wasn't just asked to come and answer some question. He was actually arrested. Um, and the other thing O'Toole mentions in the book, and it's just speculation on his part because he has no way of proving it, but it, it does kind of make sense that he says that um, Captain Fritz asked Oswald if he had brought the curtain rods into the, the book depository on the morning of the 22nd. And O'Toole speculates that Oswald, probably, knowing the type of character he was, from his public statements on this, you know, that he didn't have anything to do with it, he, he speculates that Oswald probably denied this very strongly. And so O'Toole speculates that this is probably the reason why, um, when Frazier was already way, on his way home in the police car after being questioned, um, that he was made to return and given a polygraph that evening to clear up the matter. So he speculates that at the time that Frazier was being driven home, you know, Fritz had asked Oswald about the curtain rods. He denied it. And so he, Fritz had radioed, you know, to the police who were driving Frazier home to say, well, actually, can you bring him back um, to give him a polygraph? And obviously that there is no way of proving that, but it, it does seem to make sense. Um, because why else would they make him return and, you know, to have a polygraph unless they had some sort of suspicion that he wasn't telling the truth? Um, yeah. But as it said, you know, the, the results of the polygraph aren't known. Um, and several of the Dallas police deny that it ever took place. And the, the whole circumstances around the polygraph are very, very strange. Um, you know, they, they, they deny that there was, um, I think it was Gerald Hill, maybe R.D. Lewis, they denied that there was more than uh, one the policeman that was giving the test. They did. They said that there was no one else in the room. There were no other police in the room present, and that those statements came up as you know having hard stress on them when, when analysed, um, implying that they weren't actually telling the truth. Um, and also, apparently, he says that the, the, the way the polygraph was conducted was also very unusual because it kind of didn't follow the standard practice that you would normally follow when you were administering a polygraph because, you know, he said that you wouldn't, um, you would test a subject usually when they were fresh to get the best response, to get a true response. And, you know, he says Frazier had been up half the night, like you said, I think since 
one or two in the morning. Um, and so that, that wouldn't be an ideal um, an ideal way of testing the subject after they'd already been up because it could throw the results um, off balance. And he, he kind of goes a bit further and he says that the fact that it was the, the polygraph was carried out in this way makes him makes O'Toole think that the, the, the Dallas, you know, that the Dallas police actually wanted to come up with an inconclusive result of the polygraph, so that it would kind of get them off the hook, you right. know, of having to of having a, a, a result that might actually prove that Oswald was telling the truth and be actually potentially quite awkward for them. Yeah, and like I said before, the police can lie to you when you're in custody, so they could have also used it as a scare tactic against Fraser to either tell them the truth or give them what they wanted, tell them what they wanted to hear. Because um, everybody, you, you know, you got to remember, Frazier was 19 years old at the time, okay? And, you know, he seemed like a really laid-back kind of guy. I mean, you know, it's kind of out of character that he would threaten to strike Fritz. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, if somebody's trying to put a uh, confession in front of you and get you to sign it, uh, you know, you might resort to such extreme measures um, if if you felt you were innocent. Um, and Gus Rose is also to to his to his interview to the HSCA investigators. He admitted to being present during the uh, lie detector test because um, Gus Rose, I think he was the guy that actually arrested uh, or one of the guys that arrested Fraser and brought him back and was taking him back and then brought him back to the station. That's right. So he was pretty much by by Frazier's side the whole time he was in custody. I mean, he was kind of his guy. Um, so, and, and of course he says that that Frazier passed with flying colors. I think that's a direct quote. Um, yeah, and, and also during his uh, during uh, Gus Rose's um, wine commission testimony, it's very strange um, because he's he's testifying in front of Joseph Ball, and um, it's towards the end of his testimony. Um, and the commission doesn't ask him about it, but he brings it up himself. Um, and he says, oh, you know, there was something else I wanted to mention, um, that we did give Wesley Frazier um, the polygraph. Did you know about that? And, you know, Ball says, yes, yes, we did know about that. And um, he says, yes. And then Mr. Ball says, thanks. And then, you know, as happens so often when uh, a witness... Um, is giving testimony that the commission doesn't want to hear. They, you know, they, they, they swiftly bring the um, the proceedings to a close or change the subject, which right. which happened in this case. So it's almost, you know, the commission didn't even bring it up, but it's almost like Rose was wanting to get this on the record uh, for some reason. Right, and I think you know part of the problem was okay, they got Oswald in custody. Um, you know, they're feeling pressure, I guess, from the FBI or, or higher up than that that. You know, because when something happens like that, when the president is shot like that, um, you don't want you don't want to drag out the process. You know, you want to you want to get your man as quickly as possible. And the problem being, okay, they have their man, okay, but they have no proof <laughs> that he had brought a gun to work that day. So, you know, they needed somebody to put. A, you know, him bringing some kind of a package or gun into the building that day. And I think that they had Frazier by the short hairs 
um, when they had him in custody and they could have threatened him and, and they could have even told him that his lie detector test said that he was lying. You know, they could have scared the hell out of him, told him he was going to be charged and as accomplice, you know, that he had knowledge and he brought him to work, you know, unless you give us Oswald bringing something to work that day. corroborates um, the results that O'Toole um, got when he was asking about, you know, how many, you know, were there any other policemen present during the polygraph? And, you know, I think it was Hill and Lewis sort of said no. Um, well, actually, because uh, O'Toole says the only other reference he could find to, to the Fraser polygraph, he said one reference was um, in, it wasn't in the Warren report, but it was in, it was buried somewhere in the, in the 26 volumes. Um, but the only other reference he could find to, to Frazier having been given a polygraph was in the Jim Bishop book. Um, and he said that that actually gives the most de- you know, the, the most detailed account he's found of the polygraph. And, it, and he said one paragraph is very interesting, um, because it states that there were five police officers in the room. Hmm. So, you know, that's another indication that, you know, some members of the Dallas police aren't, aren't telling the truth in the polygraph. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes me think that it was it was used more of a scare tactic than to actually find out the truth. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it was used, for, you know, a little bit to parse out the truth, but when you have all these other people in there, you know, the situation is not controlled. You know, Frazier's going to be sweating bullets. He's going to be stressed out. Um and like I said before, you know, that test is only as good as the person person administering it and the questions that are asked as far as control questions and things of that nature. And so who knows? And like you said, we don't we don't have the results of that in the 26 volumes or available in the archives or anywhere that I've ever seen. No, it would be interesting to know because I, I don't. If anybody has ever tried to get hold of those, you know, has anybody ever done a Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act to try and get those results? Because I think that potentially might be a, a you know a good thing to try and follow up. Um, yeah, I mean, I think attempt, I think they, has. yeah, I think they would have. I think that something like that would have been in the DPD files that it, that you know, I, I'm not aware of anything that they're still holding back. I think they have pretty much come out with everything they have. Um at least that we're ever going to see, <laughs> you know, as, as it exactly. really, they're not holding back. As, as right. Well, I guess what I mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're not that what, what they've given us is all they're ever going to give us. I, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, like, do you believe that there was, you know, that there were no notes taken during the Oswald interview? Right. And, and Jim Mars even speaks, <laughs> Jim Mars even speaks of uh, that there was a recording system in place back then. So who who knows? I, I can't. I personally, I just can't believe that there were no notes taken whatsoever. That nothing was recorded or even or even written down. It, it just seems to stretch, you know, belief that when, when we're talking about the murder of a president, that that would not have happened. Right, because I mean, the FBI. You know, I think they would have wanted to know exactly what this guy was saying. Um, they, you know, they would have instructed they would have instructed the Dallas police, you know, to 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 record it. You know, I mean, sure they had a couple guys they had book out and hosting in there, um, but they weren't around all the time. So, 
and you know they they were questioning Oswald, you know, off and on all weekend, really, and and dragging him here and dragging him there. And another curious thing I had heard, um, and I, I'm not sure where it comes from. I think it comes from the HSCA uh, interview um, that. Frazier was actually put in a lineup with Oswald at certain times over the weekend, um, or that evening, I guess I should say, of the 22nd. I'm not sure who, in front of who, or for what reason. I remember, I remember reading something about that myself, yeah. Yeah, and that, that Oswald had said something about owning Dallas or something, and, and Frazier had said something smart to him, and, and, and Oswald told him, you're the one that drove the car. Yeah. I didn't know that, but that is interesting. Yeah, well, the problem the problem is is this, that a lot of the uh, transcripts from the HSCA interview with Buell Frazier, because I think, I think they were, I think the HSCA was on to something with Frazier, but because of the questioning of, of his coworkers, I mean, they were trying to nail him down as far as being the guy who brought Oswald to and from work all the time. And and trying to paint a, a little bit of a different picture than than the official story that we know, and uh, it turns out that there was four there was four taped interviews with Frazier that are in the archives. Two of them are so badly damaged that that they can't be they can't be recovered, they can't be deciphered, and the two that we do have are barely. Um, barely transcribable like if you read the transcripts of 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 the uh first two tapes of his hsca interview it's very nonsensical at times um you know um like they you know they couldn't exactly make the word the right words out and and things of that nature and and i think and i don't think that's an accident actually that the two out of the four tapes are illegible or undecipherable i don't think that's uh I don't think that's just uh, happenstance. No, it, it it does all seem a bit too convenient. It does, it does. Now, when uh, Oz or O'Toole, okay, when, when he first wanted to talk to Frazier, because he actually he actually thought something was up as well with Frazier, um, he enlisted the help of uh, an investigator. Who had who ran into a, a a ton of roadblocks actually when it comes to actually finding Frazier because at this point he was in the army again he had reenlisted I think in seventy one or seventy two um, I think he went in in sixty five got out in sixty seven and then reenlisted in seventy one or seventy two and the only thing they could find is that that he was on the continental United States somewhere he was classified as USCON. Which is, you know, it's short for he's on the continental United States somewhere. Um, I think he got, also got some information that he, admit, he might have been working for Boeing and in, in Washington State, which is interesting because. Um, That's right. I think I'm not, I think that might have been some kind of disinfo because I think the first investigator that was recommended to him, it, it turned out that he was feeding him false information and. He came to the conclusion that, you know, perhaps he doesn't know who sent him, but, you know, it's kind of suggested it could have been someone to actually throw him off, um, which is interesting. Because um, I think he says that this guy who's called Stevens 
made him nervous from the beginning because some of the things he said didn't quite ring true to him and I think he was the one that said that he had this contact in Bowie and then he started feeding him all this other information that he'd found these um, he knew this clerk in the Social Security Administration who who was his informant and um, she'd gotten burned when she tried to get a look at Fraser's file and then she'd looked at the file and, and um, found it contained uh, O'Toole's name with a list of, of um, Dallas policemen and um, in the book O'Toole says that he, he it didn't ring true to him so he he analysed his statements that he made to him over the phone and, and you know it came out that strong indication that, that he was lying and then he actually also checked up on him and he rang this 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 person that um, Stephen said he knew and um, you know they said they'd never heard of him um well, he, ran, he, he ran he a PSE on him too, didn't he? Some dirty tricks campaign to try and um, you know derail his his investigation. So I think that's that's extremely interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he also ran the PSE on that first investigator and, and found he was lying too about stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, uh, and uh, oh, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, from from what we know. You know, Frazier was stationed in Washington State while in the Army. So that's not too far off base. And it's also interesting to me that at the, at the height of the Vietnam War, okay, that Frazier managed somehow to, to get out of ever leaving the country and being sent, sent to Vietnam when you have people pulling, you know, two and three tours. Somehow, old Buell managed to not have to go. That's a very good point as well. Um, it, it does make you wonder um, and I think when he eventually then got an investigator who was actually on the ball um, and he found, I think this is Pelicano then who or maybe, no I think it's actually the one maybe the one before him but um, he had an investigator that was like a former FBI CIA man and he, who had contacts and um he said when he tried to run a check on Frazier through his FBI contacts, apparently, you know, as to, as to his whereabouts, um, that they refused to give him any information and they actually told him to drop the subject. So that seems to imply that that somebody was, you know, yeah, they were hiding quite worried it. that he was trying to dig and find out more about him. Right, okay. Which begs the question, why? Why, why would Frazier be so important? You know, 10 years after the assassination. Yeah, it's almost like they were trying to hide him, I mean, you know, like he was... Absolutely. Because I tell you, um, when it comes to a lot of these first-generation researchers, and even subsequently since then, really, Buell Frazier has not been very cooperative when it comes to researchers. Um, questioning him or, or, you know, basically, you know, he, he did that thing for a while where about every five years or so he'd pop out and he'd do a, a local television story, you know, where he, you know, he told his story again, you know, and then he would go back and you wouldn't hear from him for a while. Um, he never, he never bothered to write a book. Um, there's no books exclusively about Buell Frazier and his story uh, written by a third party um, that, that, you know, that he's granted. I, I, I'm really not sure over the years of, if of many interviews that he has granted as far as, you know, to researchers. Um, I was going to say, yeah, I, I'm not an, much an expert on him as you, I think. Um, 
haven't researched him that much. But yeah, it does seem that he hasn't been as willing to sort of come forward and tell his side of the stories. Somebody like Ruth Payne, for example, who, you know, has, has been quite willing to tell her side of the story. Um, and I think she, didn't she publish a book or she, she you know, advised on the book of the official story? Yeah. Was it Ruth Payne's Garage? I think she, you know. Yeah. And um, she was very much involved, I know, uh, in the reopening of the, the Irving House where she lived. Um, because I went the last time I was in Dallas in 2013 for the 50th anniversary they recently opened um the reese paint house as a museum uh, i think the city of irving it was sold to the city of irving and she apparently we were told by the uh, there was a there was a group of us from the uk who went and we were told by um one of the guides that she had um helped extensively with um you know telling them the way the house was back then and also being you know very involved in you know presenting it at, you know that clear as it was, if you believe that. Right. And I, Bill Fraser, he has spoken, you know, over the years, um, but it's been very much on his terms. Um, and even, even if you watch the sixth floor interview, you know, it's, it's softball city, you know, it's, there's nothing, there's no hard questions. You know what I mean? Um, you know, he hasn't really been taking the task with some of his statements that, that I think that he should have been through the years. And even George O'Toole through Pelicano didn't go too hard on him because he wanted to get answers from him, really. Okay, sorry about that. Hi. I think, I think I'm doing that. Really? I think I'm doing that on Hi. accident. I'm, I was trying to pull up Pelicano's uh, wiki page and, and, and read something from uh, it. Okay. But I'll stay off the internet. <laughs> coming and I was just saying that you know you can understand it in a way because you know you could say well you know these people are probably fed up with being pestered by research and they they just want a quiet life but then you have to weigh that up with the fact that his, his statements have been not proven beyond a reasonable doubt because the, the you know the PSE can't do that you know it's it's not it's not absolutely conclusive but it gives a very strong indication that he isn't telling the truth so right now personally I think there is something that doesn't add up there and yeah, and I, more, I, I don't think O'Toole was really, I don't think O'Toole was really, um, expecting much when he, when he, I mean, Pelicano came highly recommended. Uh, Pelicano also knew, um, he, he also knew how to use the PSE. Um, yeah, he was another, he, he was another, uh, person that had been quite extensively trained in it, I believe. Yes. And, uh, when he, when he actually went to, uh, Pelicano for for help in finding Fraser. I think he he found him in what twenty four hours, or that's right. Yeah, like that. and and whereas everybody else had failed. Yeah, and O'Toole couldn't believe it, you know. So he was like, okay, this guy definitely knows what he's doing, and uh, he actually let Pelicano, you know, do the interview of Fraser. Um, I think it was conducted over the phone. He he actually tracked him down. I think he was at Fort Hood in Irving. <laughs> Okay, close to home. That's right, and I think, yeah, and I think he pretended, I think Pelicano pretended to be a Texas um, newspaper man. Um, and O'Toole sort of says in the book, he was really amazed by, you know, the fact that he was so good at putting on this act, even with, you know, switching from, um, you know, his accent to a Texas accent and playing the part really, really well. And he, when he was questioning Fraser, he 
was he was very 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 good in in terms of um, he was very careful not to sound like he was accusing him of anything, but he was kind of spitting it in the way that oh you know a lot of rubbish written so I just really want to get what you know the truth is kind of thing and, and that way he actually got some really good answers from him that that then O'Toole was able to analyze but I think he says that um O'Toole analyzed his results when he replayed it the, the, the tape to him but then Pelicano separately also analyzed the results and when they when they put their their um conclusions together they both you know matched up they both thought that he was not telling the truth um yeah, which is which is interesting because you got independent corroboration of of the an- that's right yeah that's right. the analysis of these PSE tapes of Fraser, and they both came to the same conclusion and pretty much you know the same uh, results. That's right. Yeah. So you know it's not just one person with a machine. You know, um, and again, it's not it's not just you know you or me off the street that thinks that we could tell if somebody's lying or not. You know, these are people that actually were quite trained in using this machine. It would seem to be quite reliable. Um, yeah, you, you have to know how to read the you have to re- know how to read the wave graphs and everything else and ask the right questions. That's right. And even it's quite a complicated procedure to be able to also interpret the machine. Um, yeah, yeah, because O'Toole said, you know, in the book, you know, when he first got the machine and, and got it home, and after he got trained and everything, when he was practicing with it, you know, it took a little while to actually. You know, learn the little nuances and 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 to you know analyze the right parts of people's uh, responses. That's right. And I think the, the really good part about the book is um, at the back of the book, it actually prints some of the charts and what they actually look like and what the what the um, what the waveform they're called waveforms. What they look like, you know, um, according to whether someone's telling a lie, uh, to you know, to whether someone's telling the truth. And so they print, you know, kind of the basic. Um, pictures of when there's no stress present, which indicates someone's telling the truth. Um, the waveform's very irregular and up and down all over the place, which surprised me because for some reason, I don't know why, I thought it would be reverse. I thought if some, if you were lying, it would be all over the place, but you know, it's just yeah, like, like a, like a lie detector test. Over. And then moderate stress would show, um, he says, the presence of, of moderate stress would cause a smooth, trimmed hedge appearance in the overall shape, and it would look a bit like a dome. Um, whereas good stress would cause, um, he said, an increased degree of stress would straighten the overall shape of the form, resulting in a rectangular shape tilted diagonally. Whereas the hard stress, which is present when, um, you know, somebody's, it indicates somebody's not telling the truth, um, he says it would create a very smooth horizontal block and you can actually see that in the book so it's actually very interesting also to look at the process of the analysis and and what that involves right and i mean i I was even looking into um a computer program now i mean because you got to remember people this was 40 years ago okay and that yeah that's what i think you know i had to keep reminding myself when I was reading the book, because today, you know, we take for granted we have all this technology and the internet, but he was really working, you know, a lot in the dark, you know, even to obtain recordings of people. It's not like today we can just turn on the internet, go and find the, an MP3 of somebody, um, you know, we've got all the files that are disposed He had to go to the, you know, CBS, he had to go to the television companies to get the recordings, and I don't even think video, I think video perhaps is just about starting to come in, so I don't think even that was very... You know, I don't think he even had video. Um, 
So, yeah, it, you really have to remember that it's quite impressive what he actually, the investigation he actually carried out. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that it might be time to actually revisit um, doing this with the technology that we have today available. Um, I think it could be even more accurate than it was back then um, with what, what, of course, we have now available to us now. And yeah, I was, um, I was, yeah, yeah. I was thinking that myself. Um, I was thinking, has anybody, you know, has anybody tried it since? Um, I haven't heard it. Yeah, well, I was looking. I was looking. I was even looking for an app, you know, that that, that could right. that could uh, you know do it, you know, detect little micro tremors in the voice. And of course, there's there's a bunch of fun uh, fun apps on the app store that that are supposedly lie detectors, but they're just for entertainment purposes only. I don't think I don't think that you could hold them to any kind of uh, accuracy. Um, but yeah, I even I look for computer programs. Like- you know, and I couldn't find anything like yeah, it. Yeah, I guess, you know, that type of machine that he had, if it was only produced by, you know, um, that particular company that was kind of connected. I think it was a retired Army intelligence officers who first came up with the idea. I guess it wouldn't be the type of thing that would be, you know, readily on sale to the public. But that's why I think if, if, if O'Toole is still alive, it would be great to be able to track him down, to, you know, ask to be able to ask him about all this. Because um, absolutely, like you say... Um, it would be fantastic having the knowledge that we have today to um, to be able to analyse more more of these people's statements because he only you know he he only was able to work you know analyse a few people's statements but the, the person that I really would be very very interested to uh, have examined is somebody like Rhys Payne um, and you know as he said the person doesn't even have to be alive as long as there's a, a recording that's you know, the recording has to be quite clear because he says if there's a lot of background noise and interference, that can actually, um, you can't really get a good result. But so, you know, even if the person's not alive, because being 50, you know, 50 plus years on, a lot of people have passed on. But if you had even a good recording of them, you know, if there was some way to do it today, I mean, I think that would be a really, really um, worthwhile, you know, thing to thing to try and follow up on. Yeah, and I think uh, I think we should mention Francesca that I think the reason that uh, O'Toole wanted to do this was actually to determine whether or not Oswald was lying in his statements that we have. Um, and I guess we should say um, on the show that I, it was determined that when Oswald said, you know, that I that I didn't shoot anybody um, when he said I'm a patsy. Uh, you know, all of his statements in custody, I, I believe, were determined that he was telling the truth. Yes, yes, that's right. I think he publishes those at the back. I think they're one of the, I'm just checking out. Um, yeah, he, it says the PSC chart of Oswald's statements when the reporter asks him, did you shoot the president? And he replies, I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. Um, and he says the PSC chart reveals no stress. So not even... Because uh, it's important also to remember that he said that sometimes when you're questioning somebody, they might show perhaps moderate stress or good stress, and that could be attributed to the fact not necessarily that they're lying, but perhaps that you know they're they're just a bit nervous. Too tight. That could play into it. Or he gave the example of um, I think somebody when he was learning how to use the um, the machine, he said that you know there was an example they were given that somebody was. Um, I think it was a young guy who was with his father and there'd been a somebody stealing money from the till 
and um, he was questioned and he didn't show hard stress when he denied it, but he showed, I think, moderate stress. Um, and it turned out it's because he was worried about being asked about something else. I can't remember now what it was, but it was nothing related to the robbery. So he wasn't guilty of the robbery, but that's why he was exhibiting some stress. But, but generally, he says in the book, when someone exhibits hard stress, that is a pretty good indication that they are lying. Um, and yeah, he says that Oswald had no stress, so not even moderate stress, but no stress. So that's a, you know, a very clear indication that he was telling the truth. Yeah, and that's and that he was innocent. Yeah, and that's one of the few people that he analyzed that was being being honest. <laughs> you know, he tried to get and in touch with God. he tried to get in touch with Fritz, and Fritz pr- pretty much told him, "Sorry, I don't talk about the assassination," and hung up on him. But I think, um, and also you have to remember with Oswald, um, he was under a very stressful situation. You know, when he was um, in that press conference, and you know he. He'd been questioned for hours, and he had, it was a packed room. He had people hollering at him in all directions. So it wasn't as if it was a relaxed situation to begin with. Um, and even under those, you know, under those conditions, he exhibited no stress. So he says that's a very strong indication that he was telling the truth when he said that he, you know, he was innocent. Exactly. So there you have it, people. Oswald innocent. Fraser and the DPD lying, and. Uh, you know, make of it what you will. Um, but the PSE, I think, is a is a, if you actually look into the science of it, you'll find that it does hold up. It is it is act more accurate than a lie detector test. And for reasons I can't explain to you, uh, it just never took off. I think you know, like Francesca was talking about the ethics of it. I think uh, may have held it back. Maybe the price tag of it, because I saw one on the uh web archive the old web crawler that, that you know that crawls back over websites that don't exist anymore from i think it was 2002 uh that the new dector company was selling them for ten thousand dollars so <laughs> um you know it's not something that everybody could just go out and get one um and then you also had to know how to use it as well um so but it gives you something to think about it, it, it you know it it doesn't answer a whole lot of questions, but I mean, definitively, but it does point you in the direction that, okay, these people might be lying about something. And, uh, you know, it lets you look into a little bit more of what possibly they could be hiding. Um, I think it would have been a lot more interesting, Francesca, if, if he had actually went, went hard on a couple people and, and started pushing them, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I was reading it, and uh, when I first got the book, I, I immediately went to the um, the index to see if he'd uh, interviewed Ruth Payne, and I, I was really disappointed when when he hadn't, because you know she's somebody I, I, I wish that he maybe he didn't get you know maybe he wasn't able to, but I really wish that he would have been able to um, analyze her statements. Yeah, I believe he uh, he he said something about finding uh, Marina's testimony to the Warren Commission on some kind of a plastic disc in the archives, but that it was so uh, oh, yes. so badly uh, done that he believes it was up near the uh, the people who were asking the questions and not near Marina, so he couldn't hear her answers very well, and that there was a lot of background noise, so he, so he couldn't actually analyze that. But that that was the only recorded testimony for the Warren Commission was that of Marina Oswald, and it's, and it's unusable, really, to try to... Uh, 
you know, test against the PSE machine. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame because um, I guess, you know, being so much further on now that, you know, I guess it's a lot more difficult to do that kind of grassroots research on the ground with, you know, the passing of time. But no, I think I think there's I think there's still things that could be done if you, know, you can oh, yeah. figure out. Uh, there is some kind of PSE available today that somebody can yeah, you computer nerds out there listening to this, if you know how to, to code and, and write programs, um, you know, if this is something that interests you and, and you might want to do it, I mean, I don't think it would be too hard of a program to write. Um, you just have to know a little bit about, de- you know, voice detection and, and uh, changes in the voice and write a program accordingly that could do this. Um, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there. Or if you know somebody who, who yeah, could possibly I, do it, you know. Yeah, because it, I mean, if it was possible to do it with a, with a machine, you know, in, in the early seventies, with with all the technology we have today, I'm sure there must be a way of doing it digitally today, which would be probably even better. Like you said, it's just a question of um, you know, trying to track down somebody who would be able to do that, or even I just just to begin with, I'd love to know if George O'Toole is still alive. So if anybody out there knows if he is. Yeah, let us know. I mean, because I live yeah. close by, I would be able to, you know, probably go to his house and interview him if possible. If he's still in a nursing home somewhere, or if he's still in good health, or anything like that, or if anybody's got any uh, ties to Anthony Pelicano, I'd like to talk to him too. <laughs> um, That's another good avenue that, yeah, could be investigated. Yeah, so so I know a lot of people out there that listen to the show have mafia interests and and things like that. Um, and if you've heard anything, let me know. Um, but I guess uh, Francesca, we'll, we'll we'll leave it there for today. And uh, I thank you so very much for coming on and sharing your expertise. Okay, thanks very much. No, thank you for having me. It's been really nice to talk talk to you. Oh, most definitely. And, and uh, uh, hope, hope to do it again sometime. Oh, absolutely. I'll have you back. Um, no problem at all. And uh, one thing uh, before we sign off here, um, let me also let everybody know um, I'm going to put up a couple uh, cool documents that we found over on the website, uh, tlgpodcast.com, for this, uh, for this show. It's going to be right there on the post um, from the uh, Weisberg Archive. Uh, that, that, and it's a little article about... Um, PSE and the assassination tapes uh, that might give you a better idea of what we're talking about. I know it's h- kind of hard to follow aud- audibly um, unless you actually have the book, which I would recommend also get on Amazon and get a copy of this thing. I found it in a used bookstore for eight bucks, I think. And uh, Francesca, you found yours in the library, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I was very lucky. I was actually quite stunned because uh, when I when I started my, my my, uh, I'm doing a master's degree at the moment. The, the first day I went to look at the library, I, I walked in and I saw it in my, my university library on the shelf. So I was quite stunned by that. Um, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the type of book you'd expect to find. But actually, they have a pretty good uh, pro-conspiracy collection uh, on the assassination. So yeah, I was lucky. Awesome. So yeah, everybody, go check it out if you'd like to learn more. We just uh, gave you the juicy parts of it. Uh, there is a lot more to the book. Um, that I encourage everybody out there to go read for yourself. Grab yourself a copy if you can. Um, also, everybody go check out Doug at the Dallas Action Podcast. 
at 22novembernetwork.com where you can read more from, from Francesca, the grassy knoll girl. She does have some articles up there. And also on the Mary Farrell site, you can find her too uh, through the Dealer Plaza uh, Echo. I'll just search for that. You can find some articles she's written there as well. And uh, that's it for this week, people. The sun bitch is in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. Peace. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Restrictions may apply. Plans and costs for coverage may vary. Call Protect My Car for details. In these hard economic times, you've got to do whatever you can to save money. One of our biggest expenses can be our cars, especially when unexpected repair bills hit. Not anymore. If you do own a car, truck, or SUV made from $19.99 or higher, you could stop paying for car repairs. That's right. You might not have to pay a penny to have it repaired. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if you qualify. You must have an automobile made from $19.99 or higher. And all repairs. Repairs for your engine, transmission, and much more can become a thing of the past. Dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone today and get your car protected before your next repair bill hits. That's right. Total protection for your car and no more repair bills. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if your car qualifies. That's star star 1149. Never pay for car repairs again. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now. Dial star star 1149.